Luke chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 39. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed Are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb? And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we consider your word, as we think through these prayers, these praises, these songs of worship to your Son, about your Son, lifting up your name and exalting you for giving your Son for our sake. These songs of our Savior the Messiah promised throughout the Old Testament, our Lord. We pray that as we consider them, as we look at them, as we read your text, Father, we pray that your Spirit would be at work in us, testifying to our hearts about Jesus, causing us to want to well up with praise for the salvation that is ours in him and him alone. We pray that you would cause us to sing during this Christmas season. Cause us to rejoice in God our Savior. Cause us to magnify, exalt, and lift high the name of Jesus. For he is our Savior and Lord. And he is our hope, our consolation, the one to whom we look. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of my favorite parts of the Christmas season is the singing. I I love Christmas and the music that attends this time of year. And um, I I like it so much that when we do our family Bible reading slash Advent devotions, um, all through the year we don't normally sing. 
But at the Advent season, or during this time, we, we actually gather around the table, and we, we're lighting candles and doing our Bible study and singing. And um, if, if you've ever heard me sing, you would know that it's only because of the glory of the Lord that anybody endures that, ever. My, uh, my family actually um, laughs at me the, almost the entire time. We're trying to sing and worship the Lord, and, and I'm train wrecking the songs, and they're looking at me, don't you recognize you're off key, and, and you're not singing this song correctly, and, and I'm trying, I'm doing what I can, but we love to sing, in spite of the fact that I'm really poor at it. Why? Why is it that we're not the only ones who love to sing? Why do we as a people love to sing? Well, I think it's because song is a powerfully emotive medium through which we express what we believe and treasure, what we fear and feel ashamed of, what we long for and even want deliverance from. Christian singing really covers the gamut, doesn't it, from lament to praise. We sing songs that cover everything from triumphant resurrection joy to darkness, defeat, and death. Just read the book of Psalms. You'll find it all there. But all of our singing throughout the history of the church, Old Testament and New, finds its yes and amen in Jesus. Jesus is the one who was promised in the Old Testament and about whom we sang. And he is the one who arrives as a baby in the manger to his virgin mother Mary in Bethlehem to whom we lift up our voices. Jesus is the one whom the church follows, trusts in, rejoices, hopes in throughout the New Testament, not just the Old. He is the center of our songs because he is the object of our worship and praise. When we, are, when we are in darkness and despair, we can sing because Jesus is our light and our hope. When we face sin and death, we can sing because Jesus is our resurrection and our life. When we suffer from fear and shame, we can sing because Jesus is our shield and our covering. When we see the degradation of the world around us, we can sing because Jesus is the new creation. When we feel alone and abandoned, we can sing because Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. When we suffer injustice and feel bewildered, we can sing because Jesus is the sovereign and he will execute justice to the ends of the earth. When we're attacked by Satan and made aware of our unworthiness, we can sing because Jesus is our advocate and our worth. See, and when we taste the goodness of the gifts of God's creation, we can sing because we know that they're only a foretaste, a distant echo of what's to come in Jesus. And this is not only why we can sing, but it's why we should sing. See, I'm not just saying these things lead us to the ability to sing, but they're the reasons we should sing. For singing is a type of worship which we're commanded to participate in. I I want you to hear that, especially you men who tend to stand there like this looking at the screen. You're commanded to sing. 
That's not an option. Multiple places in Scripture, we are commanded to sing. Throughout the Bible, we have these poetic sections like the Psalter, the Psalms. We are inspired in these poetic sections to sing because the Holy Spirit has superintended the writing of those for the singing of the church. The Lord in his sovereignty made us into a people who sing his praises. Even in the great heavenly throne room in Revelation, what are we found doing? We're found there, we're reminded there, that we are found joining in that heavenly choir of all nations, singing, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. You see, Jesus is and always will be the reason we sing. So over the next several sermons, we're going to look at praises, poems, prophecies, songs, if you will, of praise to Jesus. Our hope is that this Advent you'll be encouraged to sing about Jesus. And I don't just mean sing about him in the sense of organized songs, but I mean when you open your mouth in prayer and when you read the Scripture and when you're going through your day, your heart, if you will, is singing his praises. You're exulting in, rejoicing in God your Savior. Our hope is that you will bless the Father for giving his son, and that you'll be moved to do so by the Holy Spirit speaking through his word. So today we're going to start the series with the song of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And I want to look first at the setting of the song, and then I want to look at the song itself, the actual song itself. It's a famous song we call the Magnificat. And we're going to look at both the setting and then the song. And this is a passage that is just filled with truths that should elicit joyful worship and singing from us. And these truths elicit worship not just from Mary, but even from John and Elizabeth. I want you to see that today. So as we look at this passage, I want you to see what causes joyful worship really in all three of these people, Mary, John, and Elizabeth. You say, John, yes, he's worshiping, singing, if you will, even in the womb. And I want you to see that. What led to that? And what causes us to joyfully worship? So let's look first at the setting. Verse 39, if you will, look there. In those days, Mary arose. Now, what are those days? Those are the days following what we've just read in Luke 1. If you were having read through the entire chapter, you would have read of the story of how an angel comes to Zechariah while he's in the temple and tells him, your wife Elizabeth, who's been barren for so many years, she is going to be with child from you. And you're going to give him the Nazarite vow, and he is going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. He's going to be the one who comes before the Christ. He's going to testify to him. His name is John the Baptist. And we read of this story of How Elizabeth, who though old in years, who though aged, who though barren all of her life and now past the years of childbearing, is miraculously worked in so that God opens her womb so that she and Zechariah have a child whose name is John the Baptist. And just after this, an angel appears to Mary and tells Mary, you're also going to be with child, but you're going to be with child from the Holy Spirit. The Lord himself is going to miraculously work in you, Mary, so that you will be 
a virgin mother, that you will give birth to the Lord's own son. And then the angel tells her, Mary, just to confirm this, go to visit your aunt, Elizabeth, where she lives, who was probably about six months along at the time of the pregnancy with John the Baptist. So we see, in those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. That's about 70 to 100 miles, by the way, from where she lived in Nazareth at the time. So she's traveled about 70 to 100 miles. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Now, the reason that we start with Mary's greeting is because it was customary in that culture, just so you're aware, for the younger woman or the younger man to first give the greeting to the older woman or the older man. It was a position of humility or deference to those who are older. So you would give that kind of deference, and, and maybe we should try that now, right? Give a little bit of deference to age. Unfortunately, in our culture, we tend to worship youth. Though youth is, is like the fount of foolishness, we all want to go back to it. In, in this culture, they actually exalted wisdom, which came with age. And so they honored those who were older. And so she begins with the greeting. Now listen to how John and Elizabeth respond to this greeting coming from Mary, who is now pregnant with Jesus. Though not showing yet, she is at the very beginning of her pregnancy. Verse 41. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary... The baby leaped in her womb. And that's an important word, that word leaped in her womb. And I'm going to come back to it in a little bit. Baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry. This is sort of a prophetic way of address. This kind of loud cry. She's, if you will, acting as a prophet here. And she's giving a beatitude to Mary. Blessed are you among women. And blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Now here's the question. How did John, who is a baby in utero, in the womb, how did John and Elizabeth both know the truth about Mary's baby. How is Elizabeth able to sing that you're the mother of my Lord, that you're pregnant with the Lord, the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior of the world? Mary isn't showing at this point. All that Elizabeth has heard is a greeting. John is leaping for joy over Jesus' draw near. And he's himself filled with the Holy Spirit, an unborn baby. Elizabeth is likewise responding in joyful worship and song about this baby Mary is carrying. And Mary isn't even showing yet. She's prophesying as the words exclaim with a loud cry point to. How? Because she's filled with the Holy Spirit. Notice the text very clearly says... Very clearly says in verse 41 at the very end, the last phrase, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And if you go back to verse 15, 
of, of Luke 1, you read this about John the Baptist. Look, start in verse 14. And you will have joy and gladness. This is the angel talking to Zechariah, John the Baptist's father. And many will rejoice at his birth, that being John the Baptist, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink. That's taking the Nazarite vow. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. So John the Baptist is able to respond with joy because he's filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And I will contend with you when I get there in a minute that what's happening even in the life of John the Baptist is even as a baby, he's beginning to prophesy about the Messiah. Even as a baby in the womb, he's beginning to prophesy about the Messiah. And then Elizabeth, also filled with the Holy Spirit, is beginning to do what? Prophesy about, the whole, about Jesus. So here you have John the Baptist prophesying about the Messiah, and here you have his mother Elizabeth, prophesying about the Messiah, both filled with the Holy Spirit, and that's how they're doing so. How do John and Elizabeth know Mary's pregnant with the Messiah? Because they're filled with the Holy Spirit. It's also how Mary knows. If you look at verse 35, and the angel answered her, that's Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Now, we realize this is the Holy Spirit coming upon her and brooding over her for her, for the, for her pregnancy, but it's also the Holy Spirit coming upon her, opening her eyes to see the truth of the Messiah that's coming in her womb. See, the Holy Spirit's job, and I'm going to give you a little mini doctrine of the Holy Spirit here, The Holy Spirit's job is to testify to Jesus. That's what he does. Prior to Jesus' life, the Holy Spirit worked through the prophets to point to Jesus' coming. Do not 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12 clearly tells us that the Holy Spirit was testifying to the prophets that they were serving not themselves but us concerning this great salvation, that as they were prophesying, they were speaking about the Messiah, Jesus, who was coming. The Holy Spirit was working in them to do that. During Jesus' life, the Holy Spirit worked through John the Baptist, through miracles, and through the preaching of Jesus to point to Jesus. We read over and over and over again in the book of Luke that Jesus was himself filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus said the Holy Spirit will come to his disciples to be a witness, advocate, and teacher concerning Jesus. That he would point his people to Jesus in John chapter 15 and 16. Well, actually, 14, 15, and 16. Frank, this is repeated three times that the Holy Spirit's going to come and testify about me to you disciples. Just before Pentecost, Jesus promised the Holy Spirit would come upon the disciples and that you'd be my witnesses. At the resurrection, the Holy Spirit worked to vindicate Jesus as Lord and Savior, according to both Romans 1, 4 and 1 Timothy 3, 16. When the Holy Spirit came, what did the disciples then do? They testified about Jesus. When the Holy Spirit gave gift to the church, gifts to the church, for example, in Ephesians 4 and 1 Corinthians, what are the gifts for? To conform us into the image of Jesus. In other words... The Holy Spirit's entire ministry from Old Testament through New 
to current day is to point people to Jesus. That's what he does. I don't want to pass over one important point in this part of our passage that's being made because it informs the nature of Mary's song. Notice when John leaps for joy. I want to point at this prophecy because I've said here that both John the Baptist and Elizabeth are prophesying about the Messiah. But I don't want to just make that a throwaway comment and not talk to you about what I mean. What do I mean? And by the way, this leaping for joy is actually pointing us to something about the nature of Mary's song itself. But notice it says in verse 41 of Luke 1, and when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. Now, the baby we know is already filled with the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist is. And he leaps in her womb. And this same verb is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's called the Septuagint, from which the apostles often quote. The Greek translation of the Old Testament. And it's used there, the same verb, in the book of Malachi. And this is important because this prophecy in Malachi is about the coming Messiah, and it's a prophecy that John the Baptist was supposed to attest to. So look with me, keep your hand in Luke 1, and look with me at Malachi chapter 4. Because I want you to see the Holy Spirit is at work in both Elizabeth and John and then Mary to testify to Jesus because that's what he does. And here we see John beginning already to prophesy himself, to point out that this great prophecy in Malachi is beginning to be fulfilled. Look at Malachi chapter 4 and verse 1. For behold... The day is coming. This is talking about that great eschatological day, the last times, the last days, that great last day. It's coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. That day, the day that is coming, shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. In other words, the day is of God's wrath, of God's justice, is coming. It's coming. And he's prophesying that that day is coming. And look what it goes on to say in verse 2. But there's another side to this day. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Same word. Same Greek word. This day is coming. This great end of all things, the day in which the Messiah would come to show mercy and to judge. And so John the Baptist is already attesting to this great day while still in the womb, leaping for joy that the great eschatological day of the one who would judge the nations and save those whom look to him has come. And John the Baptist in the womb is already testifying to it because of the work of the Holy Spirit in him. He's already attesting to it. And further, Mary's song, which is coming, is going to pick up on both both themes in Malachi of God making war on his enemies and being merciful to his friends. She sings about both things. Usually when we read this passage in in, uh, the Magnificat in Luke 1, we usually hone in on the mercy that's being shown and kind of read right over the judgment that's there. But both themes from Malachi 4 are present in this song. 
So let's, let's begin to look even at that song, but I, I just want to give you really one more detail before I jump into it. Um, come to think of it, look at verse 45 of Luke 1. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Now notice that she's speaking this beatitude over Mary. Luke is aware that Zechariah was distrusting of God's promise, wasn't he? Earlier in Luke 1, Zechariah doesn't trust his promise. Whereas Mary trusts God's promise. See, as Elizabeth speaks forth this beatitude, Luke is yet another chance to drive home an important theme. Blessing comes from trusting in God's promise and can be attained even by a lowly, insignificant teenage girl. Mary trusts in the Lord, as her song will show, and this is where true blessing is found. Luke's point isn't, and I want to be clear about this, Luke's point isn't, Mary was really trusting and obedient and thus earned God's favor. I think that's what happens, frankly, in Roman Catholicism, is we see passages like this, blessed are you among women, and see passages like this, blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment, and then what they do is they take those kind of texts and they lift Mary up and make the wrong conclusion from them. They draw the wrong conclusion. They make it as if the point of Luke is, you know what, Mary was so trusting and obedient that she really earned God's favor. And we should all be trusting and obedient just like Mary so we can get God's favor too. And those who make the gospel of Jesus this way or speak about it this way, they make it all about their trust and their obedience as if God is rewarding their faith. As if God looked at their faith and says, Their faith itself is so virtuous that it deserves a reward rather than the fact that God is looking at the object of their faith who is Jesus. And because the self-righteous, and what happens with people who believe this is they become self-righteous and proud people who are the subject of God's condemnation, not his blessing. It suddenly shifts from this God has come to save you, look to the Savior, you trust in him and you're rewarded for trusting in him. It suddenly comes from changes from we're rewarded because of him to we're rewarded because of us. We start to believe in justification by faith alone, but not justification by grace alone, so that we make faith into a new work, don't we? To turn the gospel into a story about your faith and morality, and to somehow allow your Christian faith to turn you into a kind of self-righteous hypocrites who look down their noses at all the unbelieving types out there, is the exact opposite of the humility that God blesses. Mary doesn't go on from here and sing about her great trust in the Lord. She doesn't go, you know what, you're right. You're right, Elizabeth. Blessed am I because of my incredible trust in God. She doesn't go on from here and sing about her magnificent obedience to the Lord. Mary goes on from here and joyfully worships God for his goodness to someone as undeserving as she is. See, Mary and Elizabeth and John all respond with joyful worship to God. They recognize what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will do. 
They're able to rejoice in Jesus because of the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives, telling them it isn't about them, it's about Jesus. The Holy Spirit humbled them and pointed them to their need, to their need for Christ. Here, here's the thing. You can't humble yourself. You know that? What I don't want you to take away from here today when I tell you that essentially this sermon can be summed up as God gives grace to the humble and opposes the proud. If we're going to sum up Mary's song and we're going to sum up Malachi's prophecy in Malachi 4, it's that God gives grace to the humble and God opposes the proud. You go, well, what I need to do then is humble myself. Yes, you do. And so I'm going to get about the business of being humble. Let me me tell you this. You will find that business impossible. Find it impossible. What happens when you start to humble yourself and your own work, you start to even exalt then and how much more humble you're becoming? You start to navel gaze and look good on yourself. The problem is you can't humble yourself. Even though God commands you to do so, you can't do it. I know Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But I want you to hear this. You can never be blessed and have heaven as your own by humbling yourself or being poor in spirit yourself on your own, by your own work. It'll never happen. No one is poor in spirit because of an act of the kind intentions of his own will. Or because of their circumstances even. Or because of their own natural wisdom. You're poor in spirit because the Holy Spirit has shown you the mirror of God's holy law and has crushed you and brought you to the point that you know you're weak and needy sinners. That you know that you have no hope and you know you can contribute nothing. You're you're humbled by the Holy Spirit so that you know that God justifies the ungodly. Not the already godly who have humbled themselves. He justifies the ungodly. The Holy Spirit, however, does not just crush you with the law. He does that. He does not just use the law to crush you and leave you there, though. He does not just take the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, to cut you open and expose you. The Holy Spirit also uses the balm of the gospel to heal us, to bring us out of despair and into joyful worship. So he holds the law up in front of you and says to you, listen, wicked sinner. You have no right to come before a holy God. I want you to see the truth about you. Look in the mirror. And the mirror here is God's law. The mirror here is the holiness of God. You don't match up. You don't even come close. You're nowhere near it. So it's time to get over yourself. To recognize you are without hope. That God's wrath righteously, justly abides on you. Look in the mirror of God's law and see that it's so. If you don't believe that you don't deserve the wrath of God, then you don't know much about yourself. You might be telling yourself all kinds of good news about you, but it's all a lie. It's all a lie. If you think there are good people out there who who don't deserve the wrath of God, the justice of God against their sins, then you're telling yourself a lie about them too. The news about us, folks, is not good. We've rebelled against the holy God. 
And the Holy Spirit kindly humbles us when the word is preached by holding up to us the law and saying, look at it. Look at it. You violate it in every point. You deserve God's justice. But the Holy Spirit doesn't stop there. He holds up Jesus to us as well and says, I want you to know that you're not the solution to your problem. Jesus is. Your faith, the kind intentions of your will, they're not the solution to your problem. Jesus is. God doesn't save you because you just happen to gin up enough faith. He saves you because of what Jesus did. Jesus is the beginning and the end of our faith. He is the architect and builder of it. He is everything. And the Holy Spirit graciously holds up the mirror of God's law and shows you the bad news about you and then graciously holds up the word of the gospel and shows you the good news about Jesus. Notice that it isn't the good news about you. It's the good news about him. And the Holy Spirit doesn't say to you, somehow you have to find a way by your own faith or your own works to get from being this person, this ugly damnable image you see in the mirror to being this person who deserves to be rewarded. Somehow you got to bridge that gap. You will never, ever, ever find a way because every effort you put forth is like filthy rags. The Holy Spirit graciously shows you that Jesus is your only hope. That he has done it all. That's the work of the Spirit. To open our blinded eyes so that we are able to see the light of the good news of the glory of Christ. He helps us see that Jesus has come and he gifts us so that we believe in Jesus and rejoice in him and sing about Jesus. So Mary's humble and joyful trust in Christ is not something that we credit to her account as if she somehow humbled herself to merit salvation. Just like we don't credit our humble and joyful trust to our account as if we've somehow merited salvation. The humble, joyful trust we have is a gift from the Holy Spirit. Did you guys know that? It's important to remember. It's important to remember. We are justified, declared righteous, forgiven for our sins by grace alone. Grace alone. Not grace plus something you did. Not grace plus some decision you made. Grace alone, through faith alone. Faith is not a virtue. Faith is an instrument through which you receive God's grace. It's a gift he gives you. In Christ alone, the object of our worship, the object of our faith, he's the one who's righteous, not us. To the glory of God alone. We have to remember that. This means that we believe even the faith we receive, through which we receive Jesus, is a gift of grace from the Holy Spirit. And Mary gets that. That's what I want to get across to you. Mary gets it. So do Elizabeth and John. Look at what Mary says, verse 46. And Mary said... My soul magnifies the Lord. 
Now, here's a sort of synonymous parallelism. What I mean by that is a poetic device where they're lining up two phrases that are parallel phrases that are synonymous. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. In other words, my soul and my spirit are synonymous. They're parallels. Magnifies and rejoices are also synonymous or parallel. And the Lord and God my Savior are synonymous parallels as well. So what she's saying is that I exalt I exult in, I rejoice in, I myself, I do that in God my Savior, the Lord. Why does Mary say that in the first person? Because she knows her need. Not because Mary thinks that someday you all are going to pray to her and ask her for help. But because Mary knows that Jesus is her Savior and her only hope. The same is true for us as well. And she exults in him. Now look at, she gives the ground of her rejoicing or worship in him. What's the ground? For, for, here comes the ground. Here's why I worship him. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For, behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. Why? They'll call you blessed, Mary, because, of course, you're the, the virgin mother of Christ who was sin, sinless yourself, who was consummated. I mean, yourself, you know, when you were born, you were born sinless, and then you lived sinless, and then now you're the co-redeemer, and we all pray to you, right? That's why we're all going to call you blessed. No, that's not what she says. For, behold, from now all generations will call me blessed. For, verse 40, 49, he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Not all generations call me blessed because I am mighty and will do great things for them if they only call out to me, build enough statues they walk around to my name. But he who is mighty has done great things for me. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. So what's the fear that Mary has that elicits God's mercy which Mary's talking about here. It's a reverence, an awe, a recognition that she is in the presence of a holy God, that she has no right to speak or to point to anything good in herself so that she, because she greatly needs him and must bow to all things that he is about. In other words, fearing the Lord is the posture of those who are humble. So what does a humble, God-fearing person look like? What does that kind of person look like? Looks like the kind of person that sings this song that Mary sings. That's what it looks like. God is speaking here of those who have been humiliated, taken advantage of, abused, downtrodden, those who are weak and despairing in disgrace and shame and guilt. This is generally not an accurate description of the rich and the powerful, but of the poor and the weak. Now, listen, the point isn't that God never saves rich and powerful people. The point is that the rich and powerful are rarely saved because they think they don't need God, that they're on a level playing field with him. However, rich and powerful people can also be God-fearing people who recognize that they come empty-handed and poor before God. And Mary speaks all this stuff in the first person, doesn't she? Because she's a humble, 
God-fearing servant of the Lord. She fears and reveres him. She desperately needs him. She trusts his word because the Holy Spirit has done that work in her. She doesn't think she has any right to talk back. She knows she's lowly. She knows she's poor and insignificant. Mary takes God at his word as we should. Mary makes much of her low estate and need for mercy. And so we can't flip this and make this about her virtue. This is about her humility, which is given to her by the Spirit. Her recognition of being poor in spirit. Her looking only to the Lord as her hope. St. Augustine, who many consider one of the greatest theologians in the history of the church, actually wrote this. For those who would learn God's ways, humility is the first thing, humility is the second thing, and humility is the third thing. The greatest picture of humility, though, is not Mary, is it? It's the baby in Mary's womb. Is not Jesus showing great humility? Paul tells us that Jesus humbled himself by becoming a man. I want you to stop and consider what it is we talk about every Christmas. Because if I were an unbeliever out there, and I didn't believe what God says in his word by the work of the Holy Spirit, I would think we were all Nuts. Completely, totally lost our nut. We are off our rockers because of what we're saying at Christmas. We are saying that the Lord of glory, the Almighty One, the creator and sustainer of all things, became a baby and served us. And though innocent, died for his enemies on the cross. We are saying that the one, that that one was disgraced and cursed and shamed and abused and mocked and downtrodden. We're saying that the one who was powerful became weak. The one who had all riches became poor. The one who was innocent became guilty. The one who was honored became shame. Though blessed became cursed. Though exalted became humble for us. That's what we're saying. It's crazy talk. It's completely, absolutely outside of any kind of sense of worldly, secular sanity. Do you understand that? How does God deal with the humble? He blesses them. Mary says she's blessed. She isn't being prideful. She's recognizing that God is near to the brokenhearted. That God is kind to those in need. That the blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. She's recognizing that she needs to be saved by the baby in her womb. Think of that. She is rejoicing in her Savior, whom is the baby she's carrying. God shows mercy to the humble. Mercy is given really to those who are distressed and know they're in need, isn't it? Look, look at what Mary goes on because she also responds to the proud. She sings of God's response to the proud. So if God's response to the humble is to give them grace, what's God's response to the proud here? Look at verse 51. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he sent away hem- empty. 
He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Notice first that the text changes from the first person to the third person, plural. First she's in the first person singular, now she goes to the third person plural. It's really going from Mary's personal need to the situation of all people in all places. So in the first couple of verses, my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. And then she says, me, he's done great things for me. And then she switches to the third person. And his mercy is for those who fear him. He has shown strength with his arm. He's scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Mary's addressing God's judgment on all who are rich and proud and God's mercy for all who are poor and humble. And she begins with an anthropomorphism. You guys know what that is? That is anthropos is the Greek word for man and morphism is, has to do with this or morph is like a form. So it's the idea that she's describing something about God using human terminology that we would understand. So here's the anthropomorphism. If you look there, Verse 51, he has shown strength with his arm. Now there's a reference here, really to some degree, back to Exodus 6, where God uses his arm in Exodus 6 to make war on the proud or the Egyptians. Now look at verse 52 and 53, because I want to see how that carries through. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he sent away empty. If you notice this imagery that Mary's using shows how Jesus flipping the world upside down and the fortunes of men are being reversed. This does not mean that only the poor are saved and only the rich are damned. He's speaking of the proud in a metaphorical way as the rich and the poor as the humble. Those who think they need God are oppressed and are crying out for help. And those who don't think they need God are rich and never look to him for help. The proud among all peoples are condemned. God laughs and mocks them. Those who think they don't need God are the proud. They're proud of their accomplishments, their gifts, their talents, their hard work, and their success. They think they've arrived. They have little to be humble about because they're so consumed with their own self-importance. And by the way, this shows up first and foremost in atheism. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. But it also shows up in practical atheism. That means living like an atheist day to day. It shows up when I don't constantly thank God, recognizing everything's a gift from him. It shows up when I don't pray, recognizing my constant need for him. When I don't obey God, recognizing his lordship over me. When I don't trust God, recognizing his word is always true. When I don't flee to Jesus, recognizing my desperate need for mercy and grace. God sits in the heavens and laughs at our arrogance. Proud people think when they get to heaven that they're going to have a talk with God. Have you ever heard people say that? I've heard people say it. When I get there, I'm having a talk with him. No, you're not. Your mouth will be shut before his holiness. The proud person tries to control his life with power and influence and money and charm and good deeds. The proud person doesn't forgive well. And the proud person doesn't ask for forgiveness well. The proud person is stubborn. He doesn't seek reconciliation. He always feels justified in his bitterness towards someone because his own actions are not as morally condemnable as those of others. 
the proud person writes people off easily and refuses to love those who are difficult as if anyone isn't difficult for God. When I pray, what, what I pray, um, we are never guilty of sovereign grace, is being the self-righteous Christians who think that our family or friends or neighbors or coworkers or enemies are so sinful that we can't be around them, nor can we have our kids around them. They're not worthy of being in our space. Listen, I'm not saying don't exercise wisdom in protecting your kids and deciding the best way to associate with difficult family members or friends, but I am saying that telling your kids that we don't see grandma or grandpa or aunt or uncle or this neighbor or friend anymore because they have issues isn't teaching them anything but self-righteous pride. How are they going to learn to love difficult people if you don't teach them? How are they going to understand the gospel if they somehow think that God deals with them them the way you deal with those who sinned against you? And by the way, your kids don't have to leave home to see people with issues. Just maybe a news flash. See, it's all pride, isn't it? It's all pride. Being proud isn't left for just the super rich. It plagues us all. Do you know what God does for those who live in a state of unrepentant pride? He scatters them, tears them down, and mocks them. He will bring them down in the end, and sometimes he brings them down even in the here and now. Recognize Nebuchadnezzar from Daniel. This is all spoken by Mary in the prophetic past tense. Isn't it interesting? Look at verse 51. He has shown strength in his arm. He has scattered the proud. He has brought down the mighty. He has exalted, that verb carries over, those in humble state. He has filled the hungry. He has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant. He has done these things. Why is she speaking this way? Because she's not yet seeing the fulfillment of this. She's speaking in the prophetic past tense. Since God said it will come to pass, and since the Messiah is now even in her womb, it's so sure that it can be spoken of as if it has already happened. If you're proud, you need to know that God has a strong arm and he has already laid you low and destroyed you. You may not yet be experiencing the outcome of it, but you soon will. But there's hope here because God doesn't just use a strong arm to redeem Israel from slavery and oppression. He uses a strong arm to, what does it say? Lift up the humble. Fill the hungry. God's strong, strong arm protects and lifts up. It doesn't just destroy and put down. He's like, it's like, if you think about it this way, like a child who's getting beaten up and his father comes in while the child is getting beaten up by some attacker and the father uses his strong arm to put the attacker down and at the same time, he then picks up the child and cares for them. The father uses his strong arm to put down the proud and to lift up the humble. The humble are exalted, shown mercy and lifted up. The proud are put down, shown judgment. And you might say, well, I 
as I heard your list, I sound more like the prideful than the humble. Then repent. Repent. Look to Jesus. God will forgive you in Christ. And remember, church, that you will not, you will not in this life achieve the humility you hope to. You will not. But Jesus did. He was perfectly humble on your behalf. God has not forgotten to be merciful in the past. He will not forget to be merciful now, nor in the future. Every promise of God's mercy is grounded in the promise to be merciful, which God gave to Abraham and to his offspring forever. That's what Mary's singing about. God has always made this promise to be merciful to us. He has always made this promise to put down the proud. Always. He's keeping it now that Christ is here. And she's singing while this baby is in her womb, knowing the, the Lord is keeping his promise. This is God's promise. And the Holy Spirit's work is to move in us, to be humble enough to trust in it, so that we will joyfully worship with John and Elizabeth and Mary. And my prayer, my sincere prayer today, this week as I was preparing, is that the Holy Spirit would move in you to humble you. That he'd move in me to humble me. That he would constantly point me to the truth about me and the truth about Jesus so that I would turn from looking at myself and begin to look at him because he is my only hope. He is God's mercy. He is the one who was promised from the time of the curse at the fall. He is the one who was promised to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob throughout all of the Old Testament. He is the one who's promised to Mary and whom she's carrying in her womb as she sings this song. And he's the one who goes to the cross and pays for our sin and resurrects from the dead and ascends to the right hand of the Father where he is ever interceding for us. And he is the one who will someday return to consummate all things and to bring to complete fulfillment what was prophesied in Malachi and what Mary sings about here when he exalts the humble and scatters the proud. Let me pray. Father, we ask... We ask that we would be people who look to your son and recognize our need for him as Mary did, as John the Baptist did, as John's mother Elizabeth did, that we would recognize that we are poor and needy sinners, that Jesus is our only hope, that he humbled himself to the point of death on a cross on our behalf. He is our salvation and our righteousness. That recognizing what he has done for us would cause us, as it did for Mary and for John and for Elizabeth, to sing with joy for the salvation that is ours in Christ. And Father, we pray that your spirit would not only humble those who have never looked to your son so that they might look to him, but he would continue to humble those of us who have looked to your son so that we would begin to become more and more like him so that we would not live out of conformity to your will or to your word so that we would live humbly recognizing that we are not more worthy than anybody, that we are not less condemnable than anybody, that Jesus is our only hope, that he is our worth and our righteousness that we would live consistently with that even as we trust in him 
as a result of the work of your spirit. We pray this for your name's sake. Amen.